The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. What would you say is that most mortifying moment for you? Uh, I came across a study last week that described the 10 most embarrassing moments uh, that were described by Australians, okay? Embarrassing moments of, of social situations. So let's see how these land in terms of, of your radar. I'm not going to do all of them, but a few of them that I found interesting. Um, one of them was, uh, and I, I didn't think this was that bad, but then I started thinking about it. The first one is wardrobe malfunction. Okay, maybe you leave your zipper down or, you know, you tuck your shirt into your underwear or something like that. Or, you you know, you get some TP stuck on your shoe. Okay, wardrobe malfunction. I know the one that is most common for me is is less those things and more like I get a new pair of pants and there's that sticker that says the size. (laughs) I tend to leave that on a little too much. It's happened more than once. Okay, second one is this being lost for words. Okay, you know, and I find that this is one that, that plagues me a little bit more as I get older. And one that is, is particularly popular at the end at this time of year is forgetting people's names, right? I mean, this is, this is, dare I say, my biggest insecurity in terms of showing up to this space every week where there are names I should know and I'm like, hey, what's up, bud? Okay, don't know exactly what to say. You're lost for words. Finally, or, or the, the next one is um, the mistaken baby bump. Okay, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, now I know. Okay, you, this, this is actually great. Uh, comedian Brian Regan riffs on this where, where he says, it's one of those where the moment you start to say it, you try to stop yourself and your, and your face gets all mangled and you're like, hey, when's that baby do? You know, and you, you just, it's a bad thing. Okay, the rule on that, if you're wondering, is never, ever, 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 ever assume that somebody is expecting if they haven't first told you, okay? It is an awkward moment. And finally, romantic mishaps. This is the whole saying, I love you to someone, and then you stand there. Then <laughs> you stand, you know, yeah, stand there. See, I can tell I'm making you like nervous just thinking about it. Okay, you guys are all, all getting getting worried about it. Certainly, there are a lot of things out there that can that can feel like they would be incredibly embarrassing, mortifying. That you're going, oh my goodness, please no, do not let that happen to me. Well. I, We'll return to some of these themes a, a little bit later, but we uh, return this Tuesday to get started on uh, this invitation that we received last week to come and see and to take more than a glance, to come and see who Jesus is and what he does. And to do this over the next month or so, we're going to follow Jesus around through the first couple chapters of the Gospel of John. Think of it a bit like a job shadow. Okay, as Jesus gets started in his ministry and his job, we're going to go take a look at seeing what he does as as he travels about first century Palestine. And so tonight we're going to continue at the beginning of chapter two. And the scene is a wedding. Okay. How many of you get to go to, how many of you get to go to a lot of weddings or, or how many just have been to a wedding? Has everybody been to a wedding? Okay. Um, so, 
I want to invite you tonight to think about um, uh, uh, weddings that you've been to and what you see there. This is a wedding I did this summer. A lot of you know Grayson and Annika. And uh, there's a lot of similarities, yet some key differences between what a wedding in first century Palestine would have been like and what a wedding that we are a part of feels like. Now, I love going to weddings. They're joyous occasions. I've done about, I don't know, 82, 83, something like that now. And for what it's worth, every wedding I've done over the last 12 years, the couples are still married, which, you know, I'm fired up about that, okay? Well, I mean, thank you. Thank you, Annie. Um, so, but I got to tell you, a few years ago, I did this wedding down in, it was the first wedding I did, I've done down in the Deep South. I'm in Athens, Georgia. And, uh, you know, it's a good time. It's, it's two students who met here at the inn. They asked me to do their wedding. I was happy to go and go down to, to Athens. And, of course, we have the ceremony. We go to the reception, and it's, it's time to party. It's, it's time to dance. And as the student leaders can attest to, I like to dance. You know, I get fired up. I like to, to cut it loose. And so we're, you know, we're getting fired up. I'm dancing with the, you know, with the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids, and everybody at this party. And finally, there were some of the groomsmen that are like, church, church, dude, let's go. Let, 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 let's send you up, you know, like crowd surfing. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, you know, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, and the thing is, I promise you, like, I wasn't turnt or anything like that. I was just, okay. I was just fired up to be there. I was having a good time. So I do this, I do this crowd surfing thing. And, and finally they put me down and it's right in front of this older woman. And remember, we're in Georgia. We're in the deep South, right? And she just looks at me in a, in a Southern accent. She just goes, I've never seen a minister like you before. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm like, I'm like, that's a compliment. So weddings are joyous occasions, and, and there are some parallels between what we would have done in the first century, or what people would have done in the first century, and what we do now. Okay, so, so an engagement in the first century would be taken very seriously, almost as, that moment of engagement is almost taken as seriously as, as the actual marriage or wedding itself. Well, after several months have passed, all of the, the, the groom and his, and essentially his groomsmen, some of his family would, would leave their house and then they would, they would process. They would go over to the bride's house. Okay. Many of the weddings that you go to probably have a processional where the groomsmen and the bridesmaids walk down the aisle together. Well, in the first century, they would start and they'd go and they'd go to the bride's house. Okay. And this is a big moment. And they'd essentially say, the time is now at which point, uh, the bride is there, of course, um, you know, veiled. And it, it, uh, scriptures uh, in the prophets and in the Psalms talk about uh, brides being uh, adorned in ceremonial garments and, and jewelry. And of course, brides today are still dressed that same way. So then the, the, the groom and the groomsmen then get the bride and the bridesmaids and their family, and they start a processional back to the groom's house. Okay, so, so you're, hopefully you're picking up on some of the similarities. It's a joyous occasion. They go and, and at the groom's house, um, the groom then goes in and there's, there's a, a, uh, a ceremonial room. We have a, a, a chuppah that, that symbolizes that today. Some of the weddings that you've been to probably have a, a decoration like this. Well, in first century Palestine, um, the, the brides, the father of the bride would take the bride and then in front of all of their family gathered would 
then, you know, a, a sense, entrust this bride, and it came at a price, literally at a price. Money was exchanged. In fact, weddings in the first century had just as much to do with economics as they did with romance, and maybe even more so. Okay, tough for us to hear sometimes. And, and then there wasn't actually a priest there. And then the, the, this new couple, as the, the bride comes towards the groom, they would go into this special chamber, this special room for the bride and the groom. And at that point, after making promises in front of, you know, their, they, they would go back to this room. And in the weddings that I do, I usually say something like, because we have gathered in front of, of our friends and family as witnesses and before God through the exchange of vows and rings, you are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You know, Joe, you may now kiss your bride. Okay, well, in first century Palestine, they go back in this room, and I'm here to tell you they do more than kiss. Okay, that it was believed, okay, this might be a little bit awkward, that until that 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 first sexual act the wedding was not yet fully consummated so with all the friends and all the family there the bride and groom would go back in their special chamber and then the best man would just kind of hang out okay and people would just be hanging out and then after however long okay the that is when the best man would then say, ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege to introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Schmo. Okay, everybody claps. Okay. Now, it, it, you see, I see, I see guys up here, you know, they're going, okay, I, I, I'm into this. This I'm fired up. Uh, you know, I see the girls going, oh my gosh, no way. So glad things have changed. Well, it was at that point that, that a party kicked off, the reception. But this reception wasn't just two or three hours. This reception would last for seven days. It was a huge party. And in fact, it was at least seven days. Now, they would, they would, both families and then their friends that were invited from throughout their communities would come and party throughout uh, this week. And the worst thing that could happen at one of these weddings, of course, it's the first century, wasn't that your pictures didn't turn out or your lights and your fog machine didn't quite uh, function or the DJ plays too much Barry Manilow or whatever it may be, okay? The worst thing that could possibly happen at this wedding feast was that you would run out of wine. It's the worst thing. And perhaps because it was, it was you know, it, the, the, the festival didn't have smoke and lights, that it was the one thing you couldn't mess up. Okay, so here we are. We're into a, to this first century wedding, and I want to have Natalie read for us this story from John chapter 2 that describes Jesus and his disciples coming to a wedding. Natalie, why don't you read this text for us? John 2, 1 through 3. Well, and more. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Two and Jesus, two and Jesus and his disciples had all, oh, two, that's the verse. Okay, I was like, that counting makes no sense. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Stop laughing. <laughs> six. Nearby stood six, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize what, where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Thank you, Natalie. Okay, a few things I want to note and highlight here. Told you that we'd be on a bit of a road trip with Jesus, and we've gone about eight miles from the city of Galilee in the same region to the city of Cana. And so this wedding really provides the first stop. Now, a few things I want you to notice that are really key, that Jesus and his group of friends were invited to this wedding, and they went. Now, it seems like a bit of a minor detail, but I think it is included in the Bible so that we might remember that, that Jesus had a social life. He was invited to a party, and he went. Now, sometimes I think that we had this, this view of God, this view of Jesus, that he was just this religious sage that wouldn't necessarily go to a party. And sometimes we even have this idea of, of Jesus as, as one who would shame those who would go to a party. Okay, change your mind. John wants us to know that, that Jesus is one who was invited to a, to a wedding, to a social function, and he went. Well, we also encounter the problem that frames the story as Jesus' mother Mary informs Jesus they have no more wine. And at this point, of course, uh, you know, 7-Eleven is closed, and the party, it only says we're about three days through, okay, is only halfway over. Okay, this is not the time to run out of wine. This is bad, and Mary knows it. Now, maybe because there was a little bit of tension in the air here, there's this problem, we're going to run out of wine. I know that when I read this, there's a little bit of anxiety. And because that, when we see the way that Jesus responds to Mary, when he, it, there, it seems to be a bit abrasive, right? When he says, he says, woman, my time has not yet come. Well, here's, here's what I want you to know, is that, is that while Jesus, um, you know, responds that way, that was not necessarily an uncommon response in the first century. And in fact, later on in the Gospel of John, he, he will, when he's on the cross, he will look at his mother and say, woman, see your son. It was the same, the, the same type of greeting. So to the degree that we're, we tend to read maybe a little bit more tension and to think, wow, Jesus is getting a little bit testy here. I think we might be over-interpreting that. Because Mary does not respond defensively. Mary does not respond, you know, to this woman, uh, my time has not yet come, with that, you know, Jesus H. Carpenter, you listen to your mother, okay? You know, it, I mean, I know that in my house, if I ever got the middle initial or if I got the middle name, I knew that mom was serious, right? I know that uh, Chris Thurton on our staff has several 
you know, middle names. And he said he always knew if he was in trouble by how many names his parents used uh, when, when, he was, when he was in trouble. So it wasn't, there wasn't that type of response back from Mary. Similarly, there wasn't this kind of guilt, you know, ridden, you know, passive aggressive. Oh, come on, please do it for your mom. Okay, which I know some of us have, ex- have experienced as well. There isn't really any evidence in the text to suggest that this interaction that Jesus and Mary had was um, at all abrasive. But there was a problem. They were out of wine. And Jesus provides a solution. Jesus changed six jars of water into about 150 gallons of what the, this, the, the wine master the banquet master calls choice wine. And he did it quite literally to keep the party going. Now, is that your perception of Jesus as you come here tonight? Is that your perception of the God of the universe as one who is saying, let's have a little bit of fun. Let's keep the party going. Again, it challenges any degree of of a rigid God that we have that would shame people for partying. Now, I don't know what you all shared when I asked you to share about that moment that would be most embarrassing. But again, I alert you to the fact that should this couple run out of wine, it would be profoundly shameful. It would be something that for the rest of their lives amidst their community, they would walk down the street and people would go, hey, there's Mr. and Mrs. Joe Schmo. (laughs) I remember them. That's That was the wedding where they ran out of wine. Be profoundly shameful, in part because every couple knew, every family knew the protocol in first century Palestine and to not make good on your part of the, the social arrangement would have been profoundly Shameful. And so Jesus does this miracle. He changes the water from the the water into wine. And he spares this couple from shame. And they didn't even know it. Jesus doesn't draw attention to himself. Hey, you two. Look what I just did for you. And Jesus doesn't demand payment or penance. You really owe me now. No, none of that. What we see here is Jesus taking what was at hand, some clay jars and some water, and calling into being this wine right? Something that wasn't previously there. He takes what is natural and makes something supernatural out of it. And in doing so, those present would see a strong connection between this Jesus in front of them, mainly the disciples and the the servants, because they're the only ones who know. And they begin thinking, this seems like the God of Genesis 1 and 2. This one seems like he is one from this creator God, the one who has who has power and the one who is creative. And so we see this miracle as an act of pure grace from a powerful and creative God. And in so doing, we remember that Jesus is one who is one with the creator. 
Finally, the last verse of this section did this, says this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, this was the first sign of seven that we would hear about in the Gospel of John that revealed God's glory, that revealed Jesus' glory. Now, this is what is really important. Miracles are, are great. They're, they're, they're cool. They're spectacular. Um, yet, as we're dazzled by them, if we make too much of the miracle itself, we're missing the point. You see, in John saying this was the first of the signs... He's alerting those readers from the first century, and I think us too, that this is supposed to be something that actually points to something bigger. This is an event that points to something bigger than just water being turned into wine. It's something that points beyond itself. And that's what John wants people to catch. It's less about the miracle, and it's what the miracle points to. So in the invitation to come and see, like the disciples, we are invited to see this miracle, but not just take a glance at it. We're invited to to come and see and look a little bit more closely about what is behind this miracle, not just how it happened, but who is the one behind it? What does that mean? the one behind it actually intent. That's what it means to see a sign. We need to look beyond the miracle to see what is this actually trying to teach us. So what do we do with this sign? Just two things tonight. First is this, invite Jesus. Okay, I think it's helpful to remember, as, the, as we saw last week, that Jesus does the inviting first. Okay, before you ever invite Jesus, Jesus invites you. Come follow me. Come and see. Uh, I know that for, in my own life, uh, and I think back to my time in college, there was a season where I was living life in such a way that I was actually trying to keep Jesus out of particular parts of my life. Most of the time, those areas happen to be connected to my social life. And so there would be times where, where I might be enjoying myself at a party and I'm thinking, uh, you know, in, in ways that, that maybe not exactly like this, but I'm going, I don't want Jesus to be here. You know, I don't want to invite Jesus in. I'm not going to be the guy that does that. But here's what I want to tell you as I encourage you to invite Jesus, is that what I came to discover later is that Jesus was already there anyway. (laughs) So it was an opportunity to just live into the truth of what was already there. And this is a sign in Jesus turning water into wine, in Jesus being one who accepts a social invitation that he is in that spot too and desires to be there and be there with you. And in fact, already is. The invitation for us to invite Jesus is to simply live into the truth of who we are based on who Jesus is. Do you experience that tension? in your own life? 
are there places where you are are kind of trying to keep Jesus out? You don't want Je- you don't want uh, Jesus messing with your social life. You don't want Jesus messing with your major, with your calling. You're scared to death that Jesus might call you to something that maybe you don't want to do. Jesus is with you anyway. He's already invited you. My encouragement is to invite him. Now, why don't we invite? And this is the next thing and the last thing I want to say. Okay? The invitation is to be free from shame. But often it is shame that will keep us from making that invitation to Jesus. Now, what is shame? Okay, sometimes it helps us to understand shame by talking also about guilt. Guilt is the way that we feel when we have come short of, uh, come up short of a particular standard. Okay, we feel bad about something that we did. Shame is a little bit more uh, core to our identity. It attacks at not what we did, but who we are. And often is, is the way that we see ourselves relative to someone else. There's maybe a competitive element involved in shame. Well, again, I take us back to our story. That to me, one of the most spectacular things about this miracle, this sign, is that Jesus took a preemptive strike on shame. He wasn't going to to somehow allow this couple to have to endure that type of shame and instead invited them to joy, to experience the rest of their wedding festival as exactly who they are so that they wouldn't be remembered for what they did run out of wine. You see, he wants them to be embraced for who they are and have there be no shame. You see, shame is powerful in our lives. And the way that I often see this power play out with college students as one who's, who's been meeting with college students for the last 15 years, and certainly the, in the way that I've experienced it in my own life, is that shame can kind of paralyze us. I so often see people who have incredible gifts and talents for ministry, guys that have have passion and charisma, but because of their habits around internet pornography, they take themselves out of the game and say, there's no way that Jesus could possibly use somebody as broken like me to be in leadership or in ministry. I've met plenty of women over the years that, that are struggling with, with body image and eating in such a way that they find themselves somehow not worth it. They find themselves constantly ashamed of who they are. I meet with uh, a group of students, uh, the in-speaking team that helps me prepare these messages every week. And as I, as I ask them about some of the things that, that they would find shameful, the common theme of them um, was that there would be some sort of identification that you are incompetent, that you are a failure. And it's because of the fear of things like being incompetent, of feeling like a failure, of, of, of naming ourselves unworthy, that we take ourselves out of the game that we find ourselves paralyzed to move and to actually live into exactly who we are. 
in the story of Jesus as one who changes water into wine and in so doing keeps a couple from profound shame, we meet a God that is inviting us to take the same invitation, to say, I am going to take your shame. It's what I came to do. And so my encouragement to you tonight is to invite in the one who has already invited you. To bring those ways that you tend to think that you are disqualified, that you are unworthy. To bring that past that you are ashamed of. To bring that, that uh, behavior that you look back on it and, and is embarrassing. To bring it to the one who does who turns water into wine and who gives us a sign that says, I want to take that shame. You see, this is the same one that takes that shame to the cross and says, it is finished. You don't have to live like that. And so tonight, invite Jesus in fully. He wants to be a part of every aspect of your life. And he desires you to be free of those things that maybe you tend to keep yourself enslaved to because you think that Jesus can't handle it. In this miracle, we get a sign that Jesus can handle it, that Jesus is able to take your shame to take our shame and make something beautiful out of it. That's good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for your power that's, that desires to spare us from shame, for your heart uh, for us, for your grace uh, that, frankly, we, we can't fathom it. Help us to know it a little bit more and help us to uh, hear your invitation. And because we've invited, may we invite you in. And may we know your grace and truth as we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray.